0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Women at Work
1: on Business Radio.
0: Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, executive director of Wharton People Analytics. And we are live in the studio today to discuss the outcome of the 2020 election. It's been an amazing ride for the last four years and certainly over the last four days Um we've learned a lot about ourselves, our country, our colleagues, our friends, and also to see the way that identity matters, um, identity for who we reject, who we choose, and also who we see ourselves as, as we go to the polls, as we talk to our friends and family. And part of what we're going to do today is talk about identity and politics. And we're going to be doing that with Debbie Walsh, who is one of our favorite guests here on Women at Work. She is the director of the Center for American Women in Politics, part of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. The center is nationally recognized as the leading source of scholarly research and current data about American women's participation in politics. Its mission is to promote greater knowledge and understanding about women's participation in politics and government and to enhance women's influence and leadership in public life. Debbie joined the center staff in 1981 and became the director in 2001. She's a member of the Circle of Advisors to Rachel's Network and was named one of the 21 leaders of the 21st century by So you can see why we're so grateful to have her back with us today. Debbie, welcome back to the show. I'm
1: so happy to be with you again. Thank you for asking me.
0: So, Debbie, um, along the way... You and the staff at the Center for American Women in Politics have done a lot to help us understand who women are as candidates, who women are as voters, and what the issues are that are coming up in the legislature. So I want to dig into some of that today. But first and foremost, um, on your website at the Center, there's milestones for women in politics. Was there a big round of hoorays when you added the 2020 item?
1: Yes. Obviously, this was a very big year. and We have been, um, you know, we're, we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. And we have been waiting to see a woman um, in the White House, elected uh, and serving in the White <laughs> yes. House. Yes. And it has finally happened. Um, we thought we were going to be there in 2016. Didn't work out. Um, but here we are in 2020 with Kamala Harris as the vice president-elect, and it is such a powerful message, um, both substantively and symbolically. Um, You know, I think when Joe Biden selected her as his vice presidential running mate, he sent a message uh, to the American public and to the Democratic Party about what the future of the party looks like. I think Joe Biden knows that as a 78 year old white man, he is probably not the future (laughs) of the party. Um, And by picking Kamala Harris, he sent a message that the future of the party um, and the future of politics is female and a person of color. And that's a powerful message. And it sends a message to young women and young women of color. I think about Black girls who look at the vice president of the United States and see someone that looks like them and can now imagine that. Marian Wright Edelman, the founder of the Children's Defense Fund, said, uh, was the first person to say, you can't be what you can't see. And we now have someone that uh, girls can look up to and say, I could be that someday. And that is a powerful and important message. And she'll also bring her gender lens, her race lens to policy. Um, she will be have a seat at the most powerful table in the world where she will weigh in. Um, and I think she will be an incredible partner to Joe Biden. Um, they have already talked about, you know, she will be the last person in the room when big decisions are being made. And I think Joe Biden wants to have a vice president who... Has the relationship with him that he had with Barack Obama, and that that foretells a, a role for Kamala Harris that will be powerful and important and influential. So, it is a very good day um, <laughs> on on that front. And and uh, I don't know if you could hear us. Cheering um, when that moment came.
0: I, I yeah, actually I think I did. Um, so you touch on a couple of really... There's so much to talk about, but I want to try and touch on a couple of the really important points um, embedded in what you just said. So one of them is that she has um, her. She is in some exceptionally important rooms and some really and seated at some important tables. One of those rooms is the Senate. Given. Mm-hmm the way things are playing out in the Senate, the, po- the um, kind of legislative agendas that could be anticipated, how do you see, can you help us understand, A, what her role will be in the Senate and how you see it playing out?
1: Well, her role will will depend um, in many ways on what happens in Georgia in those two runoffs. So if those two runoffs um, uh. The Republicans win; um, she will have a very different role than if the Democrats win. If the Democrats win, we will have a tied Senate, and she will be the tie-breaking vote for the Democrats. Now, that would imply that the Democrats always vote as a block, which we know the Democratic <laughs> Party is nothing if if uh, if diverse uh, in its ideology and its positions on issues. So, we've heard. Joe Manchin from West Virginia, already talking about, you know, he he will be you know, he will be independent of the Democrats on some issues. So, you know, it's not it's not that every vote will be a tie and that she will be breaking it. But that would be a very powerful and important role that she will play. Um, I think it will be interesting to watch how this administration navigates the Senate. And I think you have a Joe Biden who functioned and worked in a Senate that was very different than the way the Senate is right now. And so having the two of them both having their own experiences, hers really having lived through the incredible partisanship of, mm-hmm. the, of the Senate that we see today, and Joe Biden's experience of, of a different kind of a Senate— they will have, uh, they will be able to, I think, really understand some of, they will understand that institution clearly far better than Donald Trump did, who had no experience there. Um, you know, they will try to figure out how they can navigate through it. Uh, and I think she will play an important role, uh, given her relationships that she has with the uh, members of the Senate and the relationships that he has. I mean, they both bring a lot to the table when it comes to working with the Senate.
0: So one of the things that we discussed the last time um, we got to talk with members of the center on the air was that women are not a monolith. They're not a monolith as voters, and they're also not a monolith as candidates. There were a lot of women candidates running for office on both sides of the ticket. Can you share with us how those races have turned and are turning out and what you think the implications are, again, for the dynamic in the in the House and the Senate chambers?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Joe Biden did not have big coattails. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there was this expectation that there would be some kind of a blue wave and we did not see it. And, you know, in 2018, as we have talked in the past, was a record setting year for women candidates. And but the in that year, it was overwhelmingly on the Democratic side. So in 2018, we had um, 36 new women elected to the to the U.S. House, and of those, um, of those thirty-six, only one of them was a Democrat. Um, and things are, you know, very, very different this year. So this year, as of now, there are still races that are outstanding, um, but there will be twenty-four new women in the U.S. House. Nine will be Democrats, and fifteen are Republicans. So. This was a year for Republican women, and I think one of the great, very straightforward stories out of this is that we saw in this cycle a record number of Republican women who ran. We did not see that in 2018. Um, But this year, when Republicans did well in House races, there were women who were running who were positioned... uh, to win, and they did. You know, if they, it, it's a very simple story in American politics. You can't get elected if you're actually not a candidate. Um, and <laughs> right. this time around, and this time around, they were candidates. And what I think is also interesting is um, seven of those um, new Republican women defeated incumbents. And as of right now, a majority of the seats that flipped. From red to blue were flipped by women candidates. And that is the same story that we saw in 2018, but on the Democratic side, where the majority of the seats that were flipped from red to blue were flipped uh, by women. So women are a powerful force on both sides of the aisle. Um, and frankly, the, on the Republican side, More effort this time around was put in, but more effort needs to be made. Um, You know, there's still overwhelmingly, you know, what we're looking at in the U.S. House is um, a situation where we're going to have a a, a far larger group of um, Democratic women. There will be at least 79 Democrats. um, I'm sorry, there are going to be 114 women in the U.S. House. 88 of them are going to be Democrats and only 26 are Republicans. So Republican women did much better this year. um, But at the end of the day, they are still underrepresented in Congress and more work still needs to be done there. On the Senate side, um, it was kind of a a year where where there was an awful lot of attention on, um, on the women who were running. We had some really interesting women versus women races in both Maine and in Iowa. Um, And in those cases, um, the incumbents won, Susan Collins and Joni Ernst. We lost one uh, Republican woman in Arizona, Martha McSally, who lost to Mark Kelly. Um, And at the end of the day, there will be 24 women in the United States Senate, um, 16 Democrats and eight Republicans. That's down from the 26 um, that are currently serving. Um, we did elect a brand-new uh, woman, uh, Cynthia Lummis, from Wyoming, the first um, woman in the Senate from the state of Wyoming. And the one race that we, we don't know about is um, Kelly Loeffler in mm-hmm. Georgia because she is one of those runoff candidates. And, of course, we'll, we are losing Kamala Harris from the Senate um, and what's interesting there is that if, um, depending on who Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, picks to be her replacement, there is a possibility that there will be no black women serving in the Senate uh, as a result. Kamala Harris is the only black woman, and unless unless Gavin Newsom selects a black woman to replace her— there will be no black women in the
0: Senate. Oh, my God. That's an important and daunting detail. By the way, you're listening yeah. to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarro, and my guest in this half hour is Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics, a bipartisan not-for-profit organization, which is part of the Eagleston, Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. So, Debbie, I want to ask you a question about one particular um Representative um, Cory Bush, she seems mm-hmm. to have a truly extraordinary story. Um, her success is remarkable. Um, in talking about how we mobilize underrepresented candidates, um, what can you share about the dynamic that got her where she is right now?
1: Well, you know, she comes out of the, the in, in large part, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, her experience in Ferguson, she's also... A great example of someone who runs once and loses but comes back again. Um, we call those our rebound candidates, um, and she she really brings a very different perspective. You know, it's not somebody who has held elective office before, but comes out of a grassroots social justice movement. And these are some of the new voices that we are going to start seeing um, in Congress, and. You know, they will they've talked about the fact that she will now become the fifth member of the squad. Right. Um, (laughs) And expanding that group of progressive women who are serving in Congress. Um, And it will be fascinating to watch her um, to watch her as she navigates through Congress. And I think what's what's interesting is, had she come in, you know, six years ago, or even four years ago, we wouldn't. She wouldn't have those kinds of allies that she has with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley or the other members of the Squad. I think what you're seeing is a kind of a growing cadre of women, um, and and it speaks in many ways to what you were asking before. Uh, or we were talking about before, which is the diversity mm-hmm. among the women, um, right, uh, and particularly when you look at women on the Democratic side, they are not monolithic. I mean, they span from Cori Bush and and uh, and the and AOC and Ayanna Pressley on one end to women like Abigail Spanberger and um, Mikey Sherrill, you know, the far more moderate, centrist Democrats. Um, And that's the challenge for Nancy Pelosi. Right. Is how, how you kind of navigate and pull together these very uh, different kinds of Democrats with different views. I mean, I think they have very much core values that are the same, but how they get there may be very different.
0: Has there been any evidence to date of uh, the way that women in politics function when there's – as the numbers grow as opposed to when they're underrepresented. Like we know to oversimplify statistics from the workplace, if you're the only – if you're the only in a room, um, you check the box for diversity, but you don't really get to have a voice. You need a critical mass of at least three of you um, in order to amplify each other. And there's yep, well, also a way that networks get built to help women navigate territories where they're underrepresented. What do we know about patterns of engagement in the Senate as women's representation grows and decreases? And what should we be looking for in how these women build coalitions and relationships?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I just want to really be clear that we are not talking about women being equally represented at this point, right?
0: So women yes, are <laughs> importantly. About,
1: they will be about a quarter of the members of Congress, give or take. Um, so women are still vastly underrepresented. They have been far more underrepresented on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. So if you were to walk into the Republican House caucus right now, pre this election— Um, you would see about 6% of the people in the room would be women. Whereas if you were on the um, Democratic side, you would be looking at about a third or more of the room being women. Um, You'd probably be looking at a room that was about 50% women, people of color, LGBTQ. So very different, very different kind of representation. Um, On the Senate side... There has been, and one of the things we know from our research is that we, we have found that women talk about and think about ways in which to work across party lines more than their male colleagues. Um, and we certainly see that operationalized in the US Senate, where for quite a long time, um, Senator, former Senator Barbara Mikulski from Maryland started convening the women in the Senate. Um, she was the dean of the women in the Senate, the first um, woman elected in her own right to the United States Senate. Um, and she, when more women started to join her, she started to convene informal dinners. And those have sustained themselves. And, you know, it seems so silly to get make, make a fuss about people getting together for dinner. But especially now in the midst of the way we are functioning in our in our congress with the kind of partisan rancor getting together to have dinner is enormous. Um, mm-hmm. And it means that there are personal relationships and in politics and I think just as it is in business relationships are what it's all about. I mean, that's how you negotiate, that's how you find common ground. It's harder to demonize somebody when you know them and have a personal relationship with them, we don't know what they talk about in those rooms because those dinners are off, you know, they're totally off the record and sworn to, you know, what what happens in those dinners stays in those <laughs> dinners. But it's hard to imagine that a group of the most powerful women in the country, if not in the world, are not talking a little bit about policy when they're getting together. Um and I think that's really important. And then I'll, I'll give you another example of how women work differently, I think, than men. And that's on the House side. So the men have a, a baseball team. The women have a softball team, the women and men members. The me- the male members have two teams. And the Democrats play the Republicans, right? So they're competing against each other. Among the women, they all play together. It's a bipartisan team. And they play against the women in the press corps.
0: Oh, my God. That is delicious, Debbie.
1: Isn't that the best? So I love that. And to me, that epitomizes the whole difference. Uh, So that's my favorite.
0: If we were a magazine and not a radio show, I would want those two pictures side by side.
1: I know. I know. And it's so... Uh, To me, it's so meaningful, and I don't think it gets enough play as those two things side by side, but to me, it encapsulates um, why I've spent my life trying to see more women in office. (laughs)
0: For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarro, and my guest in this half hour is Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics, a bipartisan, not-for-profit center at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. So, Debbie, one of the things that I'm particularly curious about is um, the way that all this diversity is taking shape on both sides of the aisle, and in particular, amongst Republican women. Um, we have Amy Coney Barrett now on the Supreme Court. We also had a very, I think, um, surprising statement that came from Lindsey Graham. Don't know if it was got more um, upsetting as it was taken out of context about framing what entitles a woman to a place in America. And um, really limiting for those of us who don't subscribe to those definitions of being a member of a church um, or having children or being married, um, how, to what degree are is that kind of cultural framing consistent amongst Republican women? How are Republican women interpreting these things? And what should we expect to see from them in the values that they use to drive their work?
1: Well, I certainly think you saw, you've been seeing pushback among women voters around that kind of messaging. Um, And you saw it at the presidential level with even more of a drop off for the Republican presidential candidate among. White college-educated women, who I think a lot of this messaging was targeted to. This talking about the suburbs and and where Donald Trump continually, rather than referencing them as suburban women, talked about them as housewives, mm-hmm. um, which I think women found insulting. Not that there is anything wrong with someone who chooses to work at home and stay at home, but but to imply that that is what all women who are in living in suburbs, also not recognizing that suburbs are no longer, you know, it was a lot of race baiting there and mm-hmm. that suburbs are no longer, you know, they are more diverse racially and ethnically um, than they were in the 1950s and 60s, which is what I think he was speaking to. Yeah. Um, You know, I think there's diversity, some diversity among the women who ran this time on the Republican side. But I will tell you that they are largely ran very closely to the president and Donald Trump. So we will have to see how they how they navigate um, and the kinds of positions that they will take. But I think it would be naive for us to think that. if you elect more women on both sides of the aisle, that they are all going to come together and have a kumbaya moment. Um,
0: no, no the, po- the politics yeah. still remain very different. Debbie, we are unfortunately running out of time. Again, I could talk to you all day. For people who want to learn more about the work that happens at the Center for American Women in Politics, how do they find you?
1: They find us at cough, cawp. Dot
0: and I'm telling you, phenomenal source of information. Debbie, thank you so much for your ongoing work and for enjoy- joining us today. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. New episodes premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Full catalog of past shows are available through podcasts wherever you get yours. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow. Many thanks to Patty Hall and my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, a fellow Howard University alumnus. Um, I'm Laura Zarrow. You've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights Podcast on iTunes and Google Play.